add my welcome to Zach. So glad that you are with us today. We're working our way through Jesus' life as Luke tells it in Luke's Gospel. And last week we saw Jesus uh, tell his friends for the first time exactly what they could expect. So all of this mystery surrounding Jesus and his identity, Jesus just comes right out and tells them that he is not the Messiah, that he is the Messiah, but he is not the Messiah that they have been looking for. He's not the one that they've been expecting. That he has not come to be a military conquering king, but he has come to be a suffering servant. And even with that, he also tells them that if, if his road to victory goes through rejection and death, if anybody would want to follow him, they must follow the same road. And so not only is Jesus not the Messiah we're looking for, but he also offers us a life that we don't necessarily expect. Self-denying, cross-bearing, Doesn't that sound like a pleasant job description? And to show you just how hard it was, how hard it is for this to click, how hard it is to grasp this, I want you to take a look look at Luke chapter 9 verse 46. This is is a verse right after the passage we're going to look at today. Alright, so this same group of men... That Jesus has just told, hey, listen, here's what you can expect if you want to follow me. You're going to need to deny yourself. You're going to need to bear your cross. This is what happens just a little over a week later. Here's what they're, here's what they're doing. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Not quite clicking, is it? Right? Clearly they don't get exactly what Jesus is saying. So, Again, even as we talk about this, we acknowledge that it is a that it is a process. That these are hard words that Jesus speaks, but they're also sweet words. Because Jesus actually says that if you want to find what life is all about, if you want to if you want to embrace what real life is, then you have to learn to give it away. And so it may taste like death right now. But Jesus goes on to say that if anyone is willing to lose his life for his sake, you'll find it. So the essence of the good life is not found in protecting yourself. It's not found in pleasing yourself. The essence of the good life is found in losing your life for Jesus' sake. And by the way, that's what encouraged the early Christians to be so radically generous. They understood that Jesus... Uh, had given everything, and so they in turn could also be radical givers. So what's Jesus doing? He's forcing us to ask the question, is he worth it? That's why Jesus says what he says in the passage we looked at last week, is Jesus worth it? Can Jesus deliver what he actually promises? And that's what I think Jesus is about to show us in the passage we're looking at this week. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in, uh, we're going to start, actually I'm going to pick up in verse 27, which is the tail end of, of Jesus' speech that we looked at last week, and we're going to read down through 45. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please use the one there in the row. We're on page 867. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, just take that one home. That can be yours. 
But let's look now at Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 27. Jesus says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing... Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask for his help in understanding it. God in heaven... Would you help us to make sense of what we see here? This sort of thing is outside of our normal experience. Transfiguration, demon expulsion. God, these are not things that we're necessarily accustomed to. So Lord, would you help us as we read your word? God, I pray for myself as I preach that you would take my words and whatever is of you, Lord, that they... Uh, that those words would endure, but whatever is from me would just be cast to the ground and blown away and forgotten. So God, would you bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to kind of set the stage, Jesus uh, is having this conversation with his disciples about cross-bearing, about loss, about difficulty. 
And then at the very end of that, he makes this very cryptic promise that some of you won't even die before you see the kingdom of God. What in the world does that mean, Jesus? And as with most cryptic things in the Bible, the answers are probably more than just one. But it at least, I think, means uh, that Peter and James and John are about to receive a glimpse of Jesus' true glory. So we're going to look at this in two parts. First, we're going to see Jesus' glory revealed on the mountain. And then we're going to see Jesus' glory revealed in the valley. Jesus' glory on the mountain, Jesus' glory in the valley. So, Jesus takes his inner circle, and he does have an inner circle. Jesus is closest with Peter, James, and John. He takes them up on this mountain to pray. And I just want to note again that here we are at a pivotal moment in the story, and what is Jesus doing? He's praying. Luke mentions this a lot. Uh, but he only mentions it in passing. We don't ever hear Jesus' prayers. We don't ever see the structure of Jesus' prayers. We just notice that all along the way, Jesus prays. Especially at significant moments in the story when something big is about to happen. And so we ought to say that if Jesus... I mean, what, what do you think Jesus prayed about? I would, I would be inclined to say, Jesus, what do you have to pray about? You stopped a storm just by telling it to hush. Uh, you, you multiplied bread for 5,000 people just by saying thank you. What, what do you have to pray about? And yet, Jesus prays often. And so if Jesus, the perfect, the perfectly holy Son of God, is regularly praying, regularly talking to His Father in heaven. That's something He enjoys to do, something He delights to do. We'll say even feels the need to do. Then surely those of us who aren't perfect and who have none of His powers should delight and enjoy the same. But I think we probably resonate just a little bit more with what the disciples are doing at this moment, which is sleeping. This won't be the last time. Uh, in, in fact, at the greatest moment in the story, uh, when Jesus is most in need of their prayers, when he is in the garden about to be arrested, uh, facing his execution, facing his separation from God, he's pouring his heart out in prayer, and his closest friends are sleeping. Right? So I just, I just want you to notice what's going on here. Jesus, is, Jesus basically becomes a bolt of lightning. Okay, He's praying, and as he's praying, his face changes. And his clothes, Luke says, turn dazzling white. Right? Uh, the, the, the language there would be the brightness of lightning. So Jesus goes from just an ordinary-looking man to this astonishing, gloriously bright, white figure. And he's having a conversation with two dead guys. I mean, I guess they're not, they're not dead because they're just not, they're, they're not living on earth anymore. But two Old Testament heroes, Moses and Elijah. So Jesus is shining bright white and having a, and having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Okay? This is kind of a big deal. And Luke tells us that the disciples were heavy with sleep. Almost so much that, that they miss the conversation, right? Like it's only as, it's only as Moses and Elijah start to leave that they're like, oh wait, whoa, what's going on? Hey Jesus, right? Um, which is one of the, 
one of the reasons I think that we can say that uh, that Luke is writing real history, that this is not some legendary story designed to make Jesus look more supernatural than he really was. I mean, that's a, that's a stream of thought, right? That uh, particularly in in there are scholars who think that we really can't trust. Yes, Jesus was a real person in history. But we really can't trust the New Testament documents. We really can't trust the gospel writers because, you know, they had a stake in the whole thing. They were, they, they, they were, they, they were, they were interested in seeing this thing grow. And so they needed to embellish the story of Jesus just a little bit. They needed to add moments like this where Jesus is more than just a man, right? To that, I would say two things. One, Nothing that the early Christians believed gained them social credibility. It actually cost them greatly. For them to believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died and rose again was not like, that, that was not a welcome wagon. People were like, oh, that's amazing. We want to be part of your movement. It wasn't. It actually cost them greatly. There, many of them, their lives. They, they died being torn apart by lions in the Roman Colosseum. Okay, so, so embellishments to the story, if that was the aim, it did not help. But then second, I would point, I would, I would say this, that if, if you would say, mm, I don't know if we can trust, I mean, is Luke real history or is it legend? I don't know if we can trust it or not. I would simply say this, if you're going to write a legend and you're going to write yourself into it, how would you portray yourself? Stunning prayer warrior or lazy and indifferent? Kind of a doofus who doesn't know what's going on. Because that's what the disciples look like through the whole story. Right? It doesn't click for them until Jesus makes it click for them after his resurrection. Okay? So, to me, this is, this is, a, this is a mark of authenticity. Because there's only three people on this mountain. Um, aside from Jesus, there's Peter, James, and John. They're the only three who knows what happens up there. And this is the report that Luke gets. Yeah, man, we were sleeping through that. Uh, we almost missed it, right? So I think we can trust that Luke is writing. Now, it's, it's history with a point. He does, he is, Luke does have an agenda. He wants us to believe. But just because he has an agenda doesn't mean that it's not true. Okay? So... So um, back to the back to the story. Jesus is transfigured. He appears in all his glory. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. What exactly is happening here? Well, remember, if you were with us last week, and the question that we've been looking at all along is this kind of who is this? And Jesus poses that question to his disciples. He says, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter says, "You are the Christ of God. You are God's Messiah." Okay, we saw Peter say that last week. It's true. And what God is doing now is he confirms what Peter had already said. He's basically, in, in, transfigure, in being transfigured, God is basically saying, Peter, you're right. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. Look at how amazing he is. God confirms Peter's confession by revealing Jesus' glory. By showing Peter and James and John just who it is that they have in their midst. Also, with Moses and Elijah present there having this conversation, what's going on there? I think that it's showing us that Jesus has come to fulfill the hopes of the Old Testament. You have Moses, 
the law, and you have Elijah, the prophets, right? The two major voices of the Old Testament. Jesus is standing between them. He is saying that he is the fulfillment of all their Old Testament hopes, and he is superior to both. Jesus is the central figure in this thing, not Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah both pointed to God's glory. On Mount Sinai, when Moses met God face to face, God's glory made his face shine. Right? So Moses reflected God's glory. But notice that in this case, the glory comes from within Jesus. And so we see Jesus being superior to Moses and Elijah. Now, now why does God show us that? Why does God put, put Jesus on display for Peter, James, and John, and us? I mean, um, we see that they don't even really understand what's happened. They, they, they remain silent about it because they don't know what to do with it. But I would just offer this as an answer. Why does God show us this? These men have just been told, their, in, their entire paradigm for how the world was going to be saved has been totally wrecked. Right? Their understanding of what the Messiah was coming to do has been, I mean, for thousands of years, has been upended, turned over. Their paradigm totally wrecked. So these men have just been told that their Messiah will die and that if they want to follow Him, they can expect the same. How do you get someone for a, how do you get someone ready for a difficult road? How do you prepare someone for facing adversity and difficulty? Is it not by showing them that the end is worth it? Is it not by demonstrating that all of the toil and trial and strife will come out in the end? Just because uh, Jesus is a suffering Messiah doesn't mean that there isn't glory to come. And so that's what we're seeing here. God gives these three men just a little glimpse of Jesus' superior beauty and glory so that that will sustain them in the future, so that that will keep them going in the road ahead. He leads them to worship, right? So what should our response be? Our response should be that we anchor our hopes and fears in the superior beauty and glory of Jesus. If Jesus is small to you, then your fears, your trials, loss, the opinions of others, they will all be great. They will be God to you. But at the transfiguration, we see that Jesus is God. He is supreme and He is worthy. And He is worth it. If Jesus is small to us, then everything else will be large. And so, first what we need to do is see Jesus as He really is. The King of glory. And then we need to anchor our hearts in Him. But Jesus doesn't stay in the clouds. He comes back down from the mountain. And He comes back down from the mountain to remind people why He has come. What He has come to do. Jesus reveals His glory in the valley when He meets a crowd. A crowd has gathered, a large crowd, and they're gathered around this, uh, probably Jesus' disciples, and this Father and His Son. 
And there's a lot of agitation. We get that from the other gospel writers. But this father comes forward and he has a boy who's in a terrible state. He's possessed by a demon that sends him into epileptic fits. It convulses him, throws him down, bruises him, causes him to foam at the mouth, and it hardly leaves him. And you can hear his dad's desperation when he comes forward and he begs Jesus and he says, This is my only son. He's the only one I've got. Would you please take a look? I begged your disciples and they couldn't do anything. This man is desperate. This boy is in desperate trouble. And to that, Jesus makes a really curious statement. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long do I need to put up with you? Man, Jesus, that's a little harsh. Um, why does Jesus, who is Jesus rebuking and why? His words echo different scenes in the Old Testament where God rebukes His people for not trusting Him, even though they had seen Him do great things. And so Jesus seems to be, yes, the crowd at large, but even in particular His disciples, rebuking them for a lack of trust. It appears as if, and Mark's Gospel helps us with this, that that they had tried to exercise the demon on their own strength. That they hadn't really prayed about it. They hadn't really sought God's face. So they were trying to do God's work in their own way. And it was failing miserably. It wasn't working. Now, some would take this and um, we would call it kind of a prosperity gospel that would say, listen, if you if you want something bad enough... Right, or, or let's put it this way, kind of the negative consequence. If something that you want to happen doesn't happen, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And they'll look at stories like this and say, that's what Jesus is saying. That if you just had enough faith, then you would get what you want. And that is unequivocally not true. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus is not activated by our faith. He is, not, he is not some machine waiting to be activated by your pushing the right buttons. If that were true, then the Bible would be a very short book. Because I cannot think of one character in the story of the Bible who was waiting around on God to act. In fact, it's quite the other way around. Just think of the story of Abraham. God approaches him. He doesn't approach God. God sends him off, makes promises, sends him to the promised land, etc. And Abraham is not a model of belief and trust. He regularly jeopardizes God's plan several times. And yet, God is faithful to his servant. So, when, when Jesus says, you faithless and twisted generation, he's not saying, if you just had a little bit more faith, you could have made this happen. You just didn't claim it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you are not trusting God to work. You, you know what it takes, and you are not trusting God. 
Right? So he is... Really what he's doing, this part of this episode, is all about calling out the disciples' failure. Right? That, that what we're going to see repeatedly is that they just don't get it. Which should be really encouraging to you and me. Because we just don't get it a lot. And Jesus is faithful. As soon as Jesus sees the boy and what the Spirit is doing to him, he rebukes the demon, heals the boy, and returns him to his dad. Which is a great picture of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus is able to completely reverse a desperate and hopeless situation. He has come, he has come to destroy the works of the devil and make all things new. So Jesus' glory is revealed, yes, on the mountain, when we see him in all of his splendor, but it's also revealed here in the valley, where he comes face to face once again with evil and completely reverses the situation. That's what Jesus has come to do. Now, here's the kicker. How has Jesus come to do this? How will he ultimately vanquish evil and make all things new? Well, let's go back up to the mountain. And let's go and let's look at the conversation that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are having. Look at verse 30. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure. The word there that Luke uses is exodus. They're talking about his exodus that he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Several centuries before this moment, God used Moses to bring a helpless people out of oppression, out of slavery, and he brings them to a mountain where he reveals his glory and absolutely terrifies them. That story is called the Exodus. Well, now here we are again. Moses is here. We're on a mountain. There's a glory cloud. There's a voice from heaven. And Peter even wants to build tents just like in Exodus. Just like what they had in Exodus. But this is different. This is not the old Exodus. This is not the old rescue story. It's a new one. We're not the servant of the king, but the king himself comes to bring helpless people out of spiritual oppression. And, like the first exodus, it will only be accomplished through the death of a firstborn son. Except this time, the firstborn son is the one and only son. The king of glory himself. The exodus that he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem is his own death, his own resurrection, his own ascension, all of which happen in Jerusalem. That is how the kingdom comes. And that is how sinful people like you and me who fall asleep when we should pray, who don't always get what Jesus is doing, that's how we become a part of the kingdom. So have you trusted in the one who brings a new exodus, who brings a new rescue from sin and death. Let's pray. God, as we come now to the table, 
We thank You first for Your Word. And God, we pray that we would understand it, that You would bring it to bear on our hearts. Father, we pray for our time at Your table, that it would be a time of communion with You. God, that You would take common elements like bread and juice and that You would set them apart for that mysterious and spiritual purpose, that that we would be edified and nourished by Your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite our elders to come forward. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread and He broke it. And having given thanks, He gave it to His disciples, said, Take and eat. This is not a meal for spiritual juggernauts. It's not a meal for people who have their acts together. It's a meal for people who acknowledge their need before Jesus. Mark's Gospel tells us a little bit more about that father and son duo at the bottom of the mountain. When Jesus, uh, when, he, when he asked Jesus to heal his son, uh, he says, are you able to heal him? And Jesus says, I'm able, do you believe? And the father says this, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the key. The key to approaching God is not acknowledging that you have your act together. It's acknowledging that you don't. That we at best are a mixture of belief and unbelief. That we're trusting and failing to trust at the same time. And Jesus pours out His grace on people like that. So as we pass the elements around, ask yourself... Do I believe? Help my unbelief. If you haven't yet made a profession uh, in Jesus as Savior, we ask that you simply would let the elements pass you by. But let's take the bread together.